Given China's political track record and recent history, it's hard to imagine that there was ever a time when the intellectual scholar was held in high authority. After all, they were systematically imprisoned and or executed during the Cultural Revolution of the 1960s and 70s, and, later on, in the Tiananmen Square protests of 1989, they were met with military opposition and hostility. However, long before Chairman Mao Zedong deemed that traditional culture be eradicated, intellectuals played an integral role in China's imperial government. Known as the Mandarins, they underwent a rigorous examination process in order to achieve this most coveted role, and not only helped strengthen China's empire, but also established its rightful place in history. But who exactly were the Mandarins? What duties did they perform? And how have they influenced modern Chinese society? I'm Chester Sakamoto, your host, and welcome to the History Loves Company podcast, because history is shaped by all of us. It's a warm, balmy day in Luoyang, the capital of Tang Dynasty, China, AD 618 to AD 907. You and other prospective candidates are lined up around the walls of the Imperial Palace, eagerly awaiting what is known as the releasing of the roll, or the announcement of the results of the civil service exam you've recently taken. Your brow is furrowed in concern. Your palms sweat. Were your answers good enough to impress the review board? To be a Mandarin is one of the highest and most respected positions in the imperial government. Needless to say, you want this job badly. Just then, a government official rounds the corner, bearing with him the results. Your heart starts to race, and you're suddenly overcome with dizziness. Will your name be on that list? As the hundreds of other candidates queue around you, you shoulder your way through the crowd in order to see it more clearly. Lo and behold, near the bottom of the list, your name jumps out at you in calligraphic script. Congratulations! You're officially a Mandarin, a scholar-bureaucrat of Imperial China. What are your duties as an esteemed member of this most coveted position? And now that you've taken the tedious Imperial exam, what more must you do to maintain your standing in said position? Before we answer these questions, let's first take a look at the history surrounding your new title. The word Mandarin first entered the Western lexicon via the Portuguese Mandarim, which lends itself from the Malay word Mantri, that in turn is taken directly from the Sanskrit meaning counselor. Though the concept of civil servants in China dates back to at least the Zhou dynasty, 1046 BC to 256 BC, it wasn't until the short-lived Sui dynasty, A.D. 581 to A.D. 618, that a meticulous imperial examination was proposed to select them by merit rather than familial ties to sovereignty or the throne. This moment is a great victory for you, as you're neither inherently affiliated with the aristocracy, nor do you have relations in either the imperial family or in government offices. You've earned this based solely upon your answers to the questions asked of you on the exam. Now that you're a Mandarin, the question of living arrangements comes to mind. Do you continue to live in your own home? or will you have to relocate elsewhere? Depending upon the jurisdiction to which you're assigned, you will be provided an office known as a yamen. It's here in which the bulk of your civic duties will be carried out. Your responsibilities include, but are by no means limited to, matters of finance, judgment in both civil and criminal cases, drafting new policies, issuing decrees, and overseeing works and projects in the capital. An adjacent home or building to the yamen will serve as your new home, and is large enough to accommodate your immediate family. This will ensure that you're not only surrounded by family, an important aspect of Chinese society, but close to your work as well. It's important to remember that your new title is described as a scholar-bureaucrat. What does this mean? It means that, alongside your duties as a civil servant, you must also immerse yourself in culture. As a member of the Chinese gentry, you must be well-versed in all manner of literature, art, 
history, and Confucian learning, the last of which forms the basis of Chinese social mores and laws, as it has since ancient times. To study such subjects is seen as a noble pursuit, arguably the highest in society, and it's imperative to be knowledgeable in these aspects in order to paint the imperial government in a positive light, as well as strengthen unity between it and its subjects. For nearly five hundred years, the position of Mandarin remains more or less the same in China. However, with the dawning of the Qing Dynasty in 1644, the government expanded the bureaucracy by dividing it into civil and military branches, both of which had nine ranks within them. These ranks are quite extensive, and merit an episode all their own, so stay tuned. <laughs> However, the Mandarin's responsibilities could now include being attendant or grand secretary to the emperor on the civil side, or being field marshal or imperial bodyguard on the military side. These were among the highest ranks. The lowest, but nonetheless coveted civil positions, were tax collector, prison warden, or police commissioner, while the military ranks extended to third-class sergeant, first- and second-class privates, or corporal. By the time the Qing dynasty and the empire itself fell in 1912, the mandarins had been replaced by modern civil service jobs and workers. After nearly 1,300 years, the era of the mandarin came to an abrupt close. However, their presence and legacy can still be felt in modern Chinese culture and society. In fact, one of the country's official languages, Mandarin, is named after them, in honor of, quote, the language of the officials, unquote, the standard speech in which they wrote and spoke. It also became the basis for standard Chinese, which is taught in Chinese schools as well as in language courses throughout the world. In addition, anyone with the surnames Guan or Quan clearly had a Mandarin or Mandarins in their family, as these names are the given word for Mandarin in Chinese. It would undoubtedly please the Mandarins knowing that their language and achievements are still being honored, studied, and seen today. That's all for this edition of the History Loves Company podcast. Thanks for listening. Be sure to tune in next Thursday and every Thursday for a brand new episode of the History Loves Company podcast, because history is shaped by all of us. This is Chester Sakamoto signing off. See you next time.